Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Mulk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as writer, engineer, and former political hack. I like politics, ice cream, and Gossip Girl. Co-founder of at Metapol AU. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Osman Faruqi. G'day, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to have you here, Oz. Can you tell me, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> Very good question. It kind of depends on you know what group of people or what sphere of my work that I'm hanging out in. But generally <laughs> I say, oh, I'm sort of a writer, but I feel like a bit of a poser and I'm also dipping my toe into the world of startups. It, it sounds like a bit of a wanky mouthful, but... It's the best way I've come up with to describe what I'm up to these days. Why do you think that as a writer, you're a bit of a poser? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I never studied media media or creative writing or anything like that. I studied engineering and politics at university and mm. spent most of my working life working in politics and kind of discovered that I had a bit of a passion for writing and gave it a go and, you know, was pretty lucky to get a few different gigs but I guess I feel guilty as someone who hasn't studied or really worked hard in industry to get to where I am I think it's partly been just you know sheer luck that's gotten me to where I am I feel (laughs) I feel like it's a bit unfair for all the hard-working media grads being pumped out of universities struggling to find work and here I am like just decided to quit politics and and use my engineering studies to be a writer and it's working out okay (laughs) You, you don't think that that's actually a really fair lesson for all of those media grads to learn <laughs> that it's not about what you know, but who you know? Yeah, I look, that's a very good point. And when I was growing up, I guess my favorite writers and journalists were actually people that weren't necessarily studied or trained as journalists. They knew about particular topics. You know, they, they knew them in quite a lot of detail. They spent mm-hmm. time researching and building up relations with people and told really interesting stories. So, you know, I don't think I'm really up to their standards yet, but I think it's an interesting lesson even now that the media industry is in a fair bit of turmoil. But if you know your topic and you're good at researching, you're good at explaining things to people, it doesn't really matter if you've studied a, a three-year media degree. Yes, I agree entirely. Oh, yeah. I I think, you know, I actually have young writers um, who contact me nowadays, which is very humbling, who say, oh, look, you know, I've read your work and, you know, know, I I find the stuff that you do quite interesting and it's something similar to what I want to do. What advice do you have? And to some of them who are considering doing like a master's in, in writing or in media, I tend to say to them, like, don't bother. If you want to work in media, if you want to write, just do it. You know, there's heaps of community radio stations if you're interested in radio that will give you a go if you want to write articles about things just write them and pitch them to editors that's how you get better at doing this thing not by necessarily spending twenty thousand dollars and locking yourself in a classroom for a couple of years that said if you want to be one of the people that stands up in front of a tv camera and reports the news to us uh, that can really help to have spent that money and be locked in that classroom look yeah that's a good point that's like not really something I've got experience with or not really something I'm interested in doing, but I think that's probably true. The people that I know who have gone on to do TV news journalism seem to have benefited quite substantially from the practical uh, classes that they did in that area. Yeah, so that's a very good point. Uh, Only because you have to learn how to use that voice, though. Yeah, the the very particular, you know, talking to right down to the camera on the evening news kind kind of voice, totally. Yeah, lots of nods and then, and now we're going to talk about this. 
Yeah, I can't do the voice. It's one thing that I've, you know, I, I kind of pride myself in some impersonations. Um, but the television news camera voice, I guess, because I didn't study media for three years, I've never really been able to pull off. They'd beat it into us. Yeah. If we did it, they would make sure we knew how to do it. Yeah, yeah, totally. What are you passionate about, Oz? Cool question, mate. So, I mean, it's interesting. When I got into politics, I, I worked for the Greens for a long time and I stood as a candidate. And what got me interested in that was mainly my interest in the environment. And, you know, when I was growing up in a town called Port mm. Macquarie on the mid-north coast, it's hard to live that close to, to nature and, and, you know, to surf every day and go on bushwalks and not care about you know, the natural environment and the direction that we might be heading in. So for me, as, as a young person getting active politically, the environment and climate change were kind of no-brainers for me to spend my time in. And, and even now that I've taken a bit of a back step from politics, it's still something that motivates what I do. So, in, you know, in my writing, um, in the, the kind of community work that I do, I like to think that I'm contributing and starting important discussions about social justice, equality, environmental sustainability... And even in the, the business side of things, I'm in the early stages of starting up a, a new solar company with a, with a business partner. And I guess I want to use the skills that I've been lucky enough to be able to hone in, in my different kind of work environments to keep doing something better. You know, again, and maybe it sounds a little bit wanky that I want to change the world and you know, do whatever I can. But I'm a, I'm a pretty firm believer that if, you've got, if you're lucky enough, like I am, to have a good education, to have you know, the support... Um, of friends and family to be able to pursue my different interests. I want to do that in a way that helps people and not just mm. in a way that's about, you know, making me rich or whatever. Not that I'm on the pathway to being rich, but, um, <laughs> you know, rather than just getting locked into the private sector for the sake of the money, I want to, um, I guess, you know, use the opportunities that are there to, to try and do something a bit better. So what, given your, your background, what do you make of the current political climate we are mid election campaign a very long election campaign uh the media at times seem to be scraping to get you know the the sound bites and those sorts of things for the evening news and if you follow the polls it's never been closer <laughs> never been a better time to have an election that's right it's interesting i was I, you know i like to watch the commercial evening news because you know, whilst a lot of people on Twitter probably don't, um, and particularly the people I talk to, very engaged politically, that's where most normal Australians get their news from, right? They're not living on the mm. internet 24-7. They're not even getting the news from ABC or Sky or SBS. They tune into Channel 7, Channel 9. And these days, even though we're officially in the midst of an election campaign, they tend to not be reporting politics that much. And I think that's a couple of reasons. I think the election campaign having started so early and been going on mm. for so long there's still six weeks to go uh, five and a half weeks to go um a lot of people aren't tuning in so there's no point in leading your news with the small kind of boring irrelevant sideshow stories from the campaign because people just don't care but then on the other hand political parties themselves even though they're locked in this <laughs> this contest and they're traveling around the country in buses and charter planes they also know that people haven't tuned in so set they're saving their big announcements and their big kind of policy and their vision for the for the future for the couple of weeks leading up to the election. So I think for the next month, unfortunately, the campaign's not really going to get much more inspiring. They the fact that the political parties also hold their official uh, you know launches till the you know second last week or last week of the campaign is also based around the funding of of their their campaigns and stuff, isn't it? Like once they launch their campaign, the way the funding comes from the government 
changes gear. Yeah, that's it? right. I think if you're a sitting MP or you know, an opposition leader, prime minister, a minor party leader, you have access to certain allowances that allow you to charge the taxpayer for your travel and accommodation, that sort of thing. But once you officially launch your campaign, um, that tap is, you know, dries off and you've got to use your own donations and funding to do it, which is why we have this bizarre situation in election campaigns where we have a campaign which has been going on where, you know, politicians travel the world, travel Mm -hmm. the country and announce policies, but then they launch their campaign, some instances, a week before election day. It's kind of like totally farcical, but the media loves it. The media buy into it. So they get blanket coverage of their official campaign launch, even though that launch is only seven days before the election. So many babies to be kissed. (laughs) It's babies to be kissed. And more recently, I think, more and more we're seeing the hard hat, high vis thing replace the the kissing babies. And like the faster our manufacturing sector declines and disappears, the more politicians are desperate to to look like they're getting their hands dirty and, you know, don some fluoro vests. It it just looks to be a circus beyond, uh, you know, a Cirque du Soleil performance. We know... That the journalists are going to ask them, what do you think about this? They're going to give us their three, you know, three-letter slogans and their, you know, talking points for the day, and everyone packs up and gets in the bus and goes to the next spot where the same thing happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's look, and it's interesting because a lot of people over a number of years have been critical of the way that the media just dutifully, you know, follow along the politicians. The fact that they don't know where they're going, they don't know what candidates they're going to be talking to, they don't know what electorates they're visiting, they don't know what policies are going to be announced, mean that the journalists themselves don't have any time to do research to look into what the issues are, what kind of questions they might want to ask, what are the hot button you know, topics in that particular local area. And of course, the politicians love it that way because they can keep the journalists in the dark and control the message as much as possible. But a lot of people have been critical of the way that journalists will buy into this kind of circus, as you say. Um, And we've seen recently Fairfax has pulled out its journalists from the campaign bus. They've kept their Mm. photographers so they can get photos and, you know, and footage of what goes on. But they've decided that it's a better use of their time and money to have journalists actually researching stories and doing real journalism. And a lot of people, I think, aren't aware, but it's actually media organisations themselves that pay the roughly $50,000 per journalist cost to travel on those campaign buses. That's crazy money. It's a lot of money. And in the context of, you know, staff cuts at Fairfax and I guess, you know, the media industry not really being particularly well off at the moment, um, it's fair enough, I think, for editors and journalists to reconsider whether or not they're getting bang for their buck just touring around, um, you know, riding the coattails of Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull. Elections, people, get used to them. (laughs) That's where we're at right now. I don't don't know. I mean, do you get the feeling that Australians are paying less attention to politics now than at any other time? I mean, that's the sense that I get, but I've obviously got a a smaller time time pool of experience. My my take on it, Oz, is I think that people have become, and broadly, more smarter or or more aware of uh, some of the game of a campaign. Mm, mm. Um, so they know that people, you know, that they're going to turn up, they're going to say, if it's, you know, the government of the day currently, they're going to say jobs and growth a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to, you know, here's a uh, candidate for region, nice photos, camera stuff for hopefully gets on the local news, uh, particularly in regional areas, because that's always a win, good content. And and that's kind of it. And it really only becomes, and this is where you're right, having Fairfax saying, well, we're going to dump the journalists, but we'll, we'll keep the photo journalists there. Mm. Um, it's those 
unscripted moments where Bill Shorten gets accosted, you know, walking through a mall or, you know, the main street by a woman. Oh, I love you, Bill. Come here, give us a kiss. That sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're the things that people go, hang on, something real actually happened. Um, and as much as it might be just, well, she's very clearly, um, you know, a Labor supporter and thinks Bill's a good guy. Great. Um, it doesn't necessarily underscore any policy. In fact, it probably could have been a great opportunity for Mr. Shorten or someone to talk about, you know, this is what our party's going to do for people like yourself who maybe aren't earning as much money or, or might have a situation where they're in need of disability payments or the NDIS or that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that doesn't happen. That's a really good point. And the, the interesting thing is because it's parties and campaigners, you know, there's this group of people who work in politics who are called advances, mm. and it's basically their job to scout locations for campaign stops and media opportunities. And their job is to make sure that it all looks good for that for that candidate, for the for that opposition leader or for the prime minister. And so even like when we get those unscripted moments, it's it's quite rare, and that's when you get a little bit of colour. But generally, when these politicians go and campaign, and they have these campaign stops, I'm using the word campaign in kind of quotation marks, because they're not actually going to a pool of undecided voters and and talking to them. The idea of what the advances do is to make sure that when these politicians do stop off, it's as friendly as possible. So the media get all this footage and photos and audio of people showering, whether it's Bill Shorten or Malcolm Turnbull or Richard Natale or whoever, with praise. So it's an entirely confected piece of political theatre. Yeah, gone are the days when we'd have a, a Bob Hawke or a, a someone, well, or a, a member of the public referring to a, a you know candidate or opposition leader or, or prime minister as a silly old bugger or other such things. They, they, they're becoming far less common, aren't they, because of this greater stage-managed approach that's, to yeah, that's right. actual moments. Yeah, and when it happens, it goes off, you know, on, on TV and on, on Twitter and Facebook because it's so unusual. But, um, yeah, it's so unusual because everything's so micromanaged and, and stage-managed and controlled these days. Let's change gears, Oz. Sure. What is your superpower? Oh, man. Okay, this is going to sound really weird, but I, I, I have this feeling that I can predict things, not necessarily that I want to predict. Like, often they're quite bad things, but they, they tend to come true, right? And, like, I hate yeah. it when I say it because I just get this sense in my head and it's like, oh, shit, this is going to happen. Um, and they tend to be big things, not like, you know, whether I'll spill coffee on myself or whatever, but the most recent one, and I know we're trying to change gears, <laughs> but it goes back to politics for me quite regularly. But the big one for me is like sometime last year, I just got struck with this sense of, you know what, Donald Trump's going to win the Republican nomination and become president of the US. And people laughed at me. My friends laughed at me. Lots of friends made bets with me and said that would never happen. And as time goes on, it looks like it's going And there's a few different instances of that. You know, like I, mm. I had a sense that there would be an early election in Australia um, and I you know, put a little bit of money on it. And again, that just kind of happened. And it's not me trying to make those things happen. Just so everyone's clear. I don't want Donald Trump to become the president. But I just got <laughs> struck with this guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe superpower is the word for it because I can't explain it. Just the idea just kind of struck. It's like a message from, you know, the, the powers beyond. And, and, and predictions of mine, unfortunately, come true even though I don't want them to. So what are the lotto numbers this week? No, see, that's the stuff I can't predict. That's the stuff that would be useful for me to predict. Um, oh it would actually help. But it, it's, all, it's, kind of, it's kind of useful information in a way. You know, people can prepare for bad political you know, opportun- uh, circumstances. But, um, yeah, they're not, I can't pick and choose what I want to predict, if that makes sense. That 
has some fairly serious implications, Oz, well, when it, we start to talk about politics and sport. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, I, I kind of feel, you know, like, oh, this is a bit wanky, but, you know, when Nostradamus was around and, you know, he, people started saying, oh, he can predict stuff, um, that put a lot of pressure on him, right? Because, as you say, people want you to predict a lot of numbers. People want you to say this will happen or that will happen, but it doesn't work that way, mate. I just get struck by these thoughts and... You know, I say them, and even if I don't want them to happen, they happen. Are you a person of faith, belief in the supernatural? Not really, actually. And it's it's interesting. This The only times I've ever, ever kind of thought about religion or, I guess, understood why there are people who believe quite strongly in religion is when I've experienced, like, the death of someone close to me. And, you know, that's happened to me a few times over the last couple of years, and I've never really been struck by a desire to convert or to become religious, but there are those moments where you think, oh, I understand the allure of faith and religion mm. because, you know, it, it's kind of quite comforting to know that if someone that you, that you know quite well or is really close to you or a family member or a close friend has passed away, this idea that they look down upon you or, you know, they're just chilling out in heaven and when you, when you yourself pass away, you'll go and hang out with them and, you know, have a great time in the Garden of Eden or whatever. Like, that's quite a comforting kind of thought. And I think the downside of not being particularly religious is that, well, okay, someone that you know has tragically lost their lives um, and that's it, game over. You know, they just disintegrate and turn into dust and ashes and that's basically it. Um, and so I didn't mean to get all bleak and depressed, but that's, you know, r- really the only times I've been, um, I've thought about faith and religion. And is often the the times that most people only think about it is around the passing of friends and family and those things. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess that makes sense, and and I think that's why it does have an allure and appeal for a lot of people. And um, you know, even I've been to a few different quite religious uh, funeral services, and I was quite skeptical in a way because I thought, well, you know, this isn't really what I believe in. I know a lot of people here as well don't really believe in that, so I wonder how it goes. But I've always been really moved by it, and in so many ways, that is a cornerstone of religion, is the view on death and passing in the afterlife, um, really. Like, that's that's what a lot of it comes down to. So I do understand why a lot of people feel that pull in those times. It provides a lot of comfort for people. It provides a lot of com- comedy for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting blend uh, in, in that we as humans... Uh, such complex beasts when it comes to things of faith or belief or non-belief, if that's people's angle, um, that, you know, the, 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 the search for immortality is something that is so core to many stories of fiction. Mm. Um, and yet at the core of faith to a degree, it's actually about our immortality, the immortality of our soul. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I think even if people, you know, in, in modern Australia, there's obviously a weakening in religious institutions and people are mm. turning away from, you know, all sorts of religions, you know, as kind of is happening all around the world. But I think the, what the what churches and mosques and synagogues and religions generally offer isn't just faith and, you know, a priest. It's a sense of community and a sense of, there's something bigger than ourselves and we've got to work towards it. And, and I think that's 
that that disappearing, regardless of your view on faith, is a sad thing because, as you say, humans are complex creatures. We crave social interaction. We quite like institutions. We quite like the idea of working together for something bigger and better. I have that very optimistic sense of humanity rather than this idea that we're all, you know, inherently selfish beings trying to tear each other down. And I think for a, a lot of, you know, human history, religion and institutional religion offered that that sense of community in those structures. And I fear that, you know, even though I'm not religious, without those structures and without people thinking about, well, okay, what's another way that we can organise ourselves and work together and build communities and build social structures, I fear that, you know, we will end up down a path of a much more dog-eat-dog individualistic society. It's interesting that you say that humans are complex creatures. You're on the verdict with Mark Latham, <laughs> yeah. and he doesn't strike me as a very complex creature. Oh, that was a wild experience. You know, I was quite, um, you know, taken taken aback by the offer to participate in the show. It was a lot of fun in mm-hmm. the end, um, but you know, sitting around debating the future of Australian politics and and race issues with Mark Latham on one hand and Pauline Hanson on the other hand and Jackie Lambie as well was a pretty wow. wild experience. Um, you know, I had a had a pretty normal nice interaction with Mark. He was very polite to me. Um, the first time I met him in the green room, he was actually just there on his own reading a book um, and he didn't really acknowledge my presence. I'm not sure whether he realised I was on the show or it was just like a, a Channel 9 intern or something. And so I asked him what he was reading and he was reading a book about how to um, best breed different kinds of racehorses, which I thought was you know, a very unusual activity to be doing in a half an hour before you're going on a current affairs show. But it turns out he does own and breed his own racehorses. So it did make a bit of sense. Um, yeah, so it was a very disarming interaction with him. The things you can do when you're a house husband, huh? Yeah, that's right. He's just such an interesting guy. Um, and I think, like, it's kind of, I think the, the path he's gone down is really disappointing in many ways because even though his politics have never really aligned with mine, when he was in parliament and even before he was opposition leader, he was an interesting thinker on social issues, on economics, on where politics mm-hmm. should go. But I think what he's done in the last few years is just like kind of sold out any kind of beliefs he had about trying to make Australia a better place. And now he just appeals to this kind of lowest common denominator. How can I stir up as much controversy as possible to get people to talk about me and read my articles? And I think everyone in that kind of position of power and influence has a responsibility to not do that. And I think he's abrogated that responsibility. Profitably so. Yeah, I mean, potentially. Like, he he did get the sack from Fairfax, which would have hurt him. But, you know, he's been picked up now by by news and he has his podcast. So I'm not sure how well that's doing. That seems to have slowed down after a couple of episodes. Is it still, oh, still going on? I think so. I'm sure there's a level of effort that he probably doesn't want to have to attain. So it's much easier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. To sit down and write and just appear on Sky News randomly and um, say yeah, offensive I mean, things thing and just, do it again tomorrow. It disappoints me a little bit about Australia's media establishment more generally. And like, I'm talking about diversity. I don't mean in a cultural or, or anything sense. I just mean in terms of. Uh, media institutions, whether you whether the commercial TV, Sky, ABC, or whatever, so often the people that are put up as experts and commentators are the same old people we've been hearing from for, for you know for decades now, and they don't really yeah. offer anything new. Like Mark Latham offers nothing new to political debate in Australia. Yeah. He just sort of rehashes stuff from a very lazy perspective. But there are so many interesting voices um, 
you know, that are telling their stories. And a lot of them are on Twitter. That's how I got to know yes. them. And they're fascinating writers that have new and exciting takes on the world and cultural stuff, lifestyle stuff, political stuff, all sorts of things. But for whatever reason, our media kind of moguls and execs would much rather have Pauline Hanson or Mark Latham on the Today Show to talk about them than some of the really interesting younger writers we've got coming up. Well, yeah, and Pauline's managed to get herself back in the news by announcing that she's running again, Yeah, which, if nothing else, just guarantees that she'll be appearing on the Today Show or the Morning Show or Sunrise for the next four years, even if she doesn't get in. Yeah, I mean, that's it's another good example. Like, Hanson, you know, is obviously, on the one hand, a very influential part of Australian political history. You know, she did mm. dominate the narrative when she was elected. Um, but since then, like, her... She's run eight or nine times and failed to get elected. And the only way that she will ever have a chance of getting elected this an election is not because her popularity is increasing. It's just because of, you know, this, this, the very unique circumstances of there being a double disillusion election with the entire yep. Senate's being elected and new ways and voting reform, which means that the vote she needs is like 3% versus 12 is what it would have been under any of the normal circumstances. So again, like, why is she being put forward as someone who with interesting and relevant views when all the evidence is that 97 plus percent of Australians think that she's a bit of a lunatic and don't want to hear from her? I don't, I don't get the logic there. This is why democracy doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, Winston Churchill has that classic line, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all of the others. And I think there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of truth to it. Like, there are surveys um, in Australia that show that a big chunk of the population, in fact, a majority of um, Gen Y, don't believe in democracy. And I don't think that's them calling for, like, you know, dictatorships or anything like that. I just think there is a bit of a growing sense of frustration with the way our political system works. And I think that stretches from what happens in Canberra to how election campaigns are run, and as well as the way that the media, you know, plays its role in these sorts of things. Because politics and democracy isn't just about voting, it's not just about what happens in Parliament House, it's about the whole apparatus around it, and the media is a big and important part of that. What can't you tolerate? Man, these questions are... Really good, having to think about them rather than just being able to bullshit off the top of my head. Um, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> I, guess I, I think for me, it's that. So Australia is a, a, a very, you know, relatively well-off country with a lot of smart, hard-working people who are coming up with really interesting ideas to make the the world a better place. That write excellent things on on interesting, cutting-edge topics. People who are creating amazing art who are creating amazing you know technological breakthroughs in renewable energy but i feel like they never really get the success that they deserve because our people in charge whether it's the media organizations we're talking about earlier whether it's politicians themselves who are too short-sighted aren't willing to look beyond the short term and provide and create the kind of environment that would let Australia excel in all these areas. Like I wrote this piece for SBS a couple of weeks ago that basically looking at the fact that Australians don't really seem to excel at anything. Like we're kind of okay at sport, but to be honest, we're not as good as we were 10 years ago. We're not world leaders in arts and culture. We're not world leaders in um, film and television, even though we produce, you know, interesting stuff. We're not world leaders in literature. We're not world leaders in technological development. We're not world leaders in education or health, really. We're just happy to sort of, you know, be a middling kind of average country. And I guess I can't tolerate the idea that despite that there are hardworking people trying to excel in those fields, we don't really have the environment or the culture that 
pushes them to do it and helps them do it. So maybe that's a slightly different way of answering the question, but it's something that's kind of grinding my gears at the moment. Uh, it's, it's a fair response. I guess an well, additional question to you on that is the the lack of leadership that we're showing in all of those areas that you, you mentioned. Is this, if we zoom back and look at the overall timeline around Australia's role in, in the world in some of those situations, is this just that down moment where because the world is more connected and, and we have the ability for people to, to find, you know, that super smart kid, uh, you know, the girl that's creating this or thinking about this new way of delivering this that's starting to shake up that industry mm. that we would never have heard of her before because she was tucked away in a little village and it's only the fact that the internet has allowed her to get her ideas out there and um, and challenge and shake that specific industry. Is that why maybe Australia is down compared to maybe some of the leadership it's showed in the past? Look, that's a good point. And there are probably examples of other countries kind of catching up to, to us and the benefits that we've had from being a developed nation for so long. I think that's, that's fair. But, you know, I mean, one example of this is a lot of people don't know the CSIRO was crucial in developing some of the technology that underpins Wi-Fi, right, which is like ubiquitous mm-hmm. stuff that has totally changed the world, the way the world works. And that CSIRO has now been massively defunded. So the opportunities for us to play leadership roles in the next generation of technology that will shape the world and make it a better place and help people communicate and come up with even more interesting technologies and and ways of communicating um, will be diminished because of those funding cuts. And, you know, like, obviously I wasn't around 50 years ago, but it seems like there, there was clearly something, whether it was a combination of culture and policy settings that allowed mm. that to happen, that allowed organisations like the CSIRO. And, you know, another example was solar researchers at university who produced groundbreaking um, technology to, to extract as much energy from, from sunlight as possible, developed all that technology in Australia. But we don't make solar panels anymore. We, we just send those people to Japan, the US, China and Germany who now lead the world in solar manufacturing. And I see that there's been a bit of a shift there. And I think I would really love it if Australia became a country that said, you know what, we do want to lead the world in technological innovation. We want to lead the world in building renewable energy. And we want to be proud of our arts and culture as well, like you know, countries mm. all around the world are, instead of just accepting the fact that, oh, yeah, we're, we're a bit okay at everything. Let's just be happy with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we do all right. But I mean, that's classic Australian thing, yeah, and like, look, I, I, I absolutely love this country and I'm so thankful that my folks, um, you know, moved here and, and gave me the opportunity and, you know, it is an incredible place to live and everything I say comes from this perspective of I know that there are smart, hardworking people in Australia that um, could do amazing stuff and I just think that we need to harness that a bit better. So I'm not trying to, you know, tear the country apart. I wouldn't live anywhere for quits, live anywhere else for quits, but um, I don't think that means that we can't continually push ourselves to be better at what we do. Oh, I, no, that's an entirely reasonable statement, Oz, and I think that applies to a lot of things that we maybe are doing pretty good at and even things we're not doing so great at, that we need to push ourselves to do a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah. Broadly editorial. That's it. Where do you find your peace? You know, when I was a kid, I used to be really into um, computer games. I used to play a game called Counter-Strike, for a long time, which is like a first-person nice. shooter. I played competitively and, you know, was in a team that was one of the best in Australia. But um, as I got towards the end of high school and into uni, I realised I didn't really have time for it and, um, and just kind of gave it up. But recently, I've gotten back into it again and 
I find it really relaxing and soothing, as weird as it is to say, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm shooting people on the internet. <laughs> and, you know, it is like a violent video game in that sense. Um, but I find it really relaxing because so much of my job and my work, and it's been like this since I was 17, you know, first started working um, for a politician, has revolved around waking up early, reading all the news, continually reading the news, staying up to date with what's going on, you know, yep. and switching off is really hard for me and you know it's something i've been trying to work on and trying to you know duck out of social media and not stay connected but same time that's you know i benefit from that my work so i want to do it but playing this game which kind of requires me to switch all my concentration and just relax myself in that zone and have a bit of fun um i find that a really great way to zone out and just just chill out and it's basically where i get my peace it's it's an interesting disconnect isn't it because you mentioned, you know, it might sound strange shooting people on the internet, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but in a, in a gaming context, it really can be, I'm resting this part of my brain that I would normally be overloading doing all of these other things. And I'm now lifting uh, or letting this other part of my brain have a go, which yeah, yeah, that's right. is and muscle it, memory, yeah, which yeah. is... Yeah, totally. Like, um, it, you know, it, it's, an acti- it's an activity. It requires energy. Mm. It's not the same as, like, just totally tuning out and watching a TV show, which I like doing, but... And I think this is a bit of a modern issue as well. I, these days when you watch a TV show, <laughs> certainly for me, I'll watch a show whilst I'll try and do emails and be on Twitter and Facebook or whatever at the same time. And I find it difficult to separate those two things out. So I, I, watching TV or a movie isn't as relaxing as it once was. Whereas for a game, it, because yeah. I am required to be plugged into it, I'm not able to do anything else. Yes. Um, but it's using a bit of my brain that is kind of like a dead zone. All I need to do is, you know, oh, do I need to shoot that guy or shoot that guy? Um, it doesn't require a lot of heavy thinking, which I, which is why I find it relaxing. And, and gaming is one of the few things that requires 100% of your attention while it's taking place. Yeah, exactly, because I want to, you know, I still want to be good at it. I don't want to just, just log on and, you know, get owned by 15-year-old kids swearing at me and calling <laughs> me a noob. I want to, you know, I want to beat them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to excel, so I want to focus on it 100%. What's your favourite variant of, of Counter-Strike? So the, the most recent one, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, um, he's, it's interesting, I, you know, it's not the one that I've played the most, Counter-Strike uh, Source, when that came out when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. that was um, basically, you know, where it was at. But the interesting thing about the latest version is that it's really taken off globally. Like, there's now a massive um, competitive scene with multiple international wow. and domestic leagues, prize money in the millions. And, like, you know, when I was playing, when we won an Australian competition... You know, we'd win like $500 worth of computer parts. Like that was nothing, but, you know, that was exciting for us. But now you've got 17, 18-year-old kids earning tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in in winning fees. Um, You know, in lots of European countries, the tabloids have replaced the sports section with the esports section. So they now report kind of breathlessly on all the little movements happening in the esports scene. And Counter-Strike is one of the biggest esports in Europe as well. So I kind of enjoy... um, kind of staying up to date with what goes on in that sense as well even if I'm not playing mm. it's just kind of another sport for me to keep a track of now imagine the pressure on the people that are developing Counter-Strike and, and the subsequent mods or variants goodness me imagine if you put out something that broke something you'd get hammered yeah well they, they do get hammered you know, every time they release an update even if they fix stuff the initial reaction from a lot of the communities oh my god what have you done this is terrible you've destroyed everything and within a couple of days, everyone <laughs> calms down and realizes these changes were 
super sensible. But absolutely, like that's one of the differences between one of the big differences between um, these games and sports. Like imagine in, in, in AFL, NRL, changing the rules or changing the weight of mm-hmm. the ball or changing the amount of plays you could have on a team. If you did that every couple of months, um, you know, it would throw the whole game into disarray. But that does happen pretty regularly with, with online gaming and with Counter-Strike. But, um, oh you know, the community just kind of rolls with it, I guess. Well, they have to. I remember playing Counter-Strike uh, as well and, and love, oh man, I love the whole Half-Life uh, series of games. But Counter-Strike attracted me as well. The thing that always killed me with Counter-Strike is I would get together with friends and we'd, you know, play, uh, you know, a land play against each other. Yeah, that yeah. was always fun because you could talk trash. Yeah, that's right. Because the internet wasn't the greatest when, when I was doing it, um, it meant su- supreme lag and I would always get toasted. And then there would always be someone that go, oh, I found this way to, to jigger... Uh, the code, or I've got this special thing that means that I can jump way up here and you can't jump up here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the point in that? Well, I mean, that's it. That's, that's one of the hard things about competing the game. And I think it's why there, there's such a big age difference. Like, you know, in a lot of sports, people will reach their peak, you know, in their mid-20s because mm. that's when they're fit and that's when they've been playing for so long. They've, they've gotten really good at the game. In Counter-Strike, you basically reach your peak by the time you're 18. And that's because the how you get rewarded is just by playing a lot and how you find out those little tricks that no one else knows, you know. That's the corner that I can see that guy from, but he can't see me. And, you know, if I throw a, a grenade from here, I can kill that person and all that sort of stuff, and I can get an extra jump. You only really find those things out by playing it nonstop. And when you're 15, 16, you can play nonstop like I did when I was a kid. Yeah. Like, I don't deserve to have a, have a UAI. I shouldn't have got into university because I spent my entire study <laughs> vacation... <laughs> playing Counter-Strike like 24 hours a day. So I was really good at it back then and somehow still managed to get into university. But now, you know, I'll play a couple of hours a week and I, I lose horribly because these kids know all of those tricks and I, you know, I'm playing like an old person. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Well, I've set myself some pretty clear goals, actually. So, you know, I am having a pretty good crack at trying to make some of the business stuff I'm working on succeed. So Metapol is this new, you know, digital research startup I'm, I'm working on with with a friend. And we've mm-hmm. had some pretty good success recently. You know, we, we basically do two things. We do anal- analysis and aggregation of polling data out there to help provide more accurate insight into what's going on in Australian politics. And we also yes. conduct our own polls. So, you know, we want to be seen as a, a leader in social research and market research. And you know, I think that's important because polls play such an important role in Australian politics. Whether that's good or bad, I think that's up for debate. Um, but our mission statement basically is, well, if they're going to play an important role, we want to make sure that they're as accurate as possible. So the data that decides what gets done in Australia um, and, you know, what pushes politicians to do certain things is actual, real, valuable, interesting, rich data and not... Um, poor quality stuff which unfortunately like not just here but around the world you know we've been victim to um and so i'm I'm pretty keen for that to do well over the next 12 months and other than that i just would love to have the opportunity to keep you know writing the different things that i do for different publications and sharing my opinions and having people enjoy them i guess enjoying is always good yeah, that's like the thing that motivates me the most to write and do a lot of what I do. I, I'm pretty sanguine about the fact that, you know, someone's not going to read an op-ed and then, you know, do something insane and, and revolution, you know, have a revolution and change the world that way. But the politics, why I like to write, and I often write in a, in a relaxed, conversational, and occasionally I try to be funny sort of tone, because I don't want people to take it too seriously. Like, 
politics is a big thing. It's been a big part of my life. It has an enormous influence on a lot of people and the way the country works. But at the same time, as we've been talking about, it's all a bit of a joke as well. Like it mm. is. Like politicians are a joke. <laughs> the way that they get reported on is a bit silly and they all take themselves a bit too seriously. So if I can help kind of break down for people how it actually works and make sure that they don't take it too seriously and have a bit of fun along the way, I think I've kind of done my job. I think you're doing more than your fair share, Oz. The stuff that I've read is is always excellent and entertaining and, and some of these other things that you're getting involved with, like Metapol uh, and those sorts of things, that's that's excellent, excellent output. Thanks, mate. And yeah, it's, like I said, a lot of it is luck and it's not really, if you ask me a couple of years ago, oh, do you see yourself, you know, being being a, I guess, accepted writer and running a polling company, I would have laughed at you. Um, but, you know, it's another lesson, I guess, to people um, and, you know, people my age who often say, I don't know what I want to do and, you know, what should I do and how do I plan for my future? Like, I haven't planned for anything, man. Like, I studied environmental engineering and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to build renewable energy. You know, one day I'd like to get back into doing that. But basically, I've never really worked other than in small stints part-time as an engineer. I would not have told you when I was a kid that I was going to work in politics or run for parliament. And when I was working in politics, I wouldn't have told you that I was going to run a polling company and, and be a writer either. So I just think it's important to be flexible and open to opportunities. And I'm the kind of person that's really bad at saying no to things. So I kind of leap on everything <laughs> that gets offered. And that's really bad for, <laughs> for my work-life balance, but it's really fun as well. Well, thank you for the chance to speak with you today, Oz. Please know the things that you said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. No, no worries, Steve. You managed to get me talking a lot more candidly about a lot of things than I have had before. Um, so thanks very much for the opportunity. Oh, mate, it's been wonderful. Can you tell me, very clearly you're on Twitter, are there any other social accounts that you want to admit people uh, admit to or alert people to? No, you know what? I've actually kind of like wound down my social media engagements. I've you know, deleted Snapchat and I barely use Instagram. So Twitter's the place to, to hit me up, basically. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Oz underscore F is indeed human. 